Welcome, friends. Welcome to another episode of the Renegade Joint Investors Podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Burgess, professional real estate investor, permaculture and urban farmer, curmudgeon, skeptic, and Keller Williams agent. What is Renegade Joint Investors? RDI is a local real estate investment and business group that meets monthly at various locations throughout Metro Detroit. This group is about networking and doing deals. The same your grandma's Rhea, folks. No uh, guru bullshit from the front. No smell of stale coffee, bin gay, and or disappointment. You know exactly what I'm talking about. RDI is also this podcast where once a week I sit down with interesting and successful business people getting shit done. And we also have several other different shows for you. We got story time with Tommy Desmond coming up. We got flipped this podcast with Steve Londo. We got the monthly Borland group, uh, group coaching sessions, all sorts of cool shit, more to come. And if you enjoyed this podcast, help me out, man. I know I do it every time, but it really, it really matters. Go on to iTunes, rate and review. I don't make the rules, folks. Share this podcast to what do you think about people who take without giving back? Cost you nothing to do this. And I think a lot of you guys are doing it because somehow in the last two weeks, we went from a thousand weekly listeners to 1500 weekly listeners. So I think a lot of you are stepping up to the plate and sharing it. So I don't see all the shares, too, because you have to share it from the Renegade Detroit Investor page for me to see it or be a friend of mine on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or wherever you're sharing it. So to everybody who's sharing it that I can't see that I know must be happening, thanks. I really appreciate it, man. It really does help. All right. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, go to RenegadeDetroit.com. If you're interested in attending any of the local meetings, go to meetup.com forward slash Renegade Detroit Investors or Facebook.com forward slash Detroit Investment Club. And on the Facebook one, there's a little, you go to the events and you can hit subscribe. They make you do that to make sure you don't miss it. And uh, you can hit me up on Twitter and Instagram at Jeremy Burgess. And of course, I'm on uh, Snapchat at Jeremy A. Burgess or go to YouTube.com forward slash user forward slash Detroit Wholesalers. All right, legal disclaimer. In no way, shape, or form should anything that I or my guests say be taken as legal and or investment advice. We highly recommend that before you make any investment decision or decisions, you contact a lawyer and or other licensed professionals. Be an adult. Don't fucking sue me. All right. Time for the Renegade Short Investor Show Quote of the Week, where I pick a quote that sets the tone for the podcast and hopefully your week. And I went with something from Mr. Abraham Lincoln. If I had eight hours to chop down a tree, I'd spend six sharpening my axe. Abraham Lincoln. All right. So this is it. This is part six, the final review of The Shift by Gary Keller. And that's a book for agents, but I think it applies to everybody, right? This is for downturns in real estate markets, which uh, often involve economic recessions, right? So this is where we go through and everything we highlighted and all the notes. This is kind of like the cliff notes. So you lazy bastards who are so busy, if you want to Skip the first five and just come right to the review. I think you can. I think it makes a lot of sense to do the read along though. So if you're starting on this one, I recommend um, buying the book. You can go get it right on Amazon or go check it out from the library. I put a link in too if you want to help out. Uh, go ahead and click on that, buy it. I get a small little teeny tiny piece of it if you do, and uh, start back at one and and do the read along. You know, I think I think it helps. It's helped me a lot. And uh, you know, if you don't want to, I guess I'll go fuck myself. You can start right here. That's fine with me too. So. Here we go. We're going to start with the forward. These are the things I highlighted. And if you highlighted different things than I did, I recommend you do the same thing. Do the notes. And by the way, all these notes will be available via PDF and a link in the show notes. So you can look for it right down there. Now, I don't tell you this so you can be lazy and not take notes and not follow along. 
rather is like a helpful guide, right? So no shortcuts. Let's get to it. We're going to start in a forward. No challenge, no achievement, no success. You know, simple enough, right? If it's easy, if it was easy, everybody would do it, right? Success takes action. And sometimes those actions will be hard and sometimes they'll be easy. They'll get there by making decisions based on whether or not they want to do something rather than whether or not they should do something. You see, John, the road to average is paved with I don't want to's. What he's talking about here is all the success, man. You do all the things nobody else wants to do. Successful real quick. Success is doing what you must. That means not letting it slip, right? You got to do what you got to do to get what you want when you want it. The formula for success doesn't get any clearer than that. A shift becomes the era of opportunity for those willing to do what others won't. And there's tons of examples of businesses who made their break and gained market share during shifts, during economic downturns, right? This pushes a lot of people out of business and you can scoop that market up. You must drop the bad habits of a good market and adopt the good habits of a bad market. I love that quote, right? And there's no time like the good market we're in right now to practice and prepare, right? Um, Alan just flips this approach around by spending up to four hours aggressively marketing an open house, and then he holds it open. It's packed and can last less than an hour. And here he's talking about how most agents uh, hold an open house for two to three hours and don't spend any time marketing it. He's talking about shifting this around, spending several hours marketing it and only staying open for an hour. We've observed that when top agents delegate lead generation and appointment setting, their conversion rate usually falls from upward of 80% to much less than 10%. So delegate everything else, right? This is one of the highest per dollar activities you can do as an agent or investor or anybody setting appointments, right? The poorest performing agents want to get paid a lot to play a lot before they've earned the right by working a lot. It's faulty thinking that when played out, never pays out. And this doesn't just apply to agents too, right? Probably a family member. You probably work with people. Um, a lot of people really think the world owes them, right? They just I just get by existing, by participating, um, my, my production and my performance doesn't matter. And if you find yourself thinking this, or it may be surprised by the results. Well, wake up, man. Uh, that's why we say the real world, right? In the real world, long term, you get paid for production. You get paid for performance. And uh, nothing else really matters. All right. The secret of successful hiring is to let your support needs grow based on one result. Having too many leads to handle. And I'm there right now. I'm working on that. That shit's hard, man. When you aim past obstacles, they may slow you down, but you still have breakthroughs. And the analogy they used in, in the book and the shift um, that I, or not necessarily, in it, but I thought of is like punching past. Uh, I think they did use it in the book where you want to punch past somebody, not aim for their head, but behind their head. Same sort of thing, right? Progress is made and the small intentional steps and chances are you have more power than you think. All right. Now this is from the introduction. Um, what happens to you today has happened before and is destined to happen again. Real estate market shift. They always have and always will. And the business goes on. This happens all the time. It's not something that's happening to you or, you know, has nothing to do with you. Right. All right. So this is uh, part one, the market shifts, the three types of real estate markets. 
Number one, buyer's market, more than seven months of inventory, right? So if there's more than seven months of inventory, you're in a buyer's market. Number two, a balance market. And this is where there's somewhere between five to seven months of inventory. And number three, seller's market, less than five months of inventory. And at least here in Metro Detroit, that would be the case. We are in a seller's market still and have been for, I think, since like around 2012. So like, what, three or four years? When market shifts occur, fear runs rampant, although not everyone responds in the same way. Um, fear runs a lot of things, right? People are attracted to this industry by the perceived income opportunity and driven out by the reality of the competition. Here's the truth. Not everyone will, but anyone can. And this is uh, for success, right? But if you've taken three steps forward and the market only drives you two steps back, you're just absorbing the hit. You're still in the game and you are more than just surviving. And here he's talking about uh, surviving shifts, right? Markets go up, markets go down. They always do. If you want to stick around and not be the person getting in and out, you got to take some punishment sometimes, right? If you can shift gear, shifting both your thinking and your tactics, you will accelerate ahead of the rest. And here's part two, you shift, right? First, we make choices. Then our choices make us. He's talking about taking ownership. You, mean, you must keep both eyes on your target and not the ever-moving market, right? Can't control the market, just your target. There are three types of people who emerge when a market shifts. First, those that fearfully predict the worst and are unnecessarily pessimistic. Second, those who hopefully wish for the best, but believe they can't fail and are unrealistically positive. I used to be one of these assholes. And third, those who respect the fact they might fail and actively prepare for the worst and strive for the best. And that's, that's the asshole I'm trying to be right now. You probably know several of those people, right? Any, anywhere in there? You can't control the market, but you can control your outlook and your response to the market. Be resolute. And that's obviously just good life advice too, right? A lot of things you can control, but basically your attitude and what you do every day are some of the things you can control. Uh, be certain of this. Your mindset matters. Know that growth comes from clarity, priorities, and focused action. Shit just ain't going to happen. You got to do things, right? When you do the right things, you leave fear behind. This is so true, right? If you know what you're supposed to do, and you don't do them, you probably go throughout your day just fearful of everything that can go wrong, right? If you just work on the behaviors and do the things you're supposed to every day, there's just a lot less stress and a lot less fear, um, every, everything else like that. Our research shows that two actions um, real estate agents must take uh, personal ownership of our lead generation and lead conversion, right? And this is something he was talking about um, if you ever outsource it, it's the last thing you outsource because your lead conversion drops significantly, right? And those are two areas where, especially in a shift, you just can't uh, you just can't let up on. The most humbling lesson of a shift is this. We succeed in good times not only because of what we do right, but also in spite of what we do wrong. Um, a lot of our success especially in a good market, really has not a lot necessarily about what we're doing, right? 
Kind of like we were talking about before, you must uh, abandon the bad habits of a good market and adopt the good habits of a bad market. Same sort of thing here. Sometimes there's just being in the market makes her make us lucky, right? School is never out for the motivated. Constantly be learning. In other words, when change affects your plan, plan effective change. And this is something that's maybe going to seem silly and maybe you haven't think of, you thought of it before, but um, I don't know. But business plans rarely survive the market as is, and the market is always changing, right? You have interference by uh, government. Um, you have global um, thing. You got like things like uh, hurricanes, which has come through and just wreck entire areas, right? So depending on where you're at and where your market's at, man, there's just just a lot that um, it's a lot you can't necessarily um, you know handle, or it doesn't go go according to plan. You got to change the plan when things don't work, right? So don't stick to the plan even though it's failing, right? The number one determinant of thriving is lead generation, but the number one determinant of surviving is expense management. So I made this mistake. We did not cut expenses fast enough. And it bled us out, man. When 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 the market takes a downshift, you almost have to take a Machiavellian um, approach to expenses, right? Name a business that has been ruined by downsizing. I can't name one. Name a company that has been ruined by bloat. I can name dozens. Good times. Make for bad decisions a lot of times. A lot of meat on the table. You can forget about it or, you know, bad times that you're saving every little scrap. Be smart about it. Profit can act like a financial pillow and become a mental cushion or like a financial sofa inviting you to take a mental nap. Therefore, sound business implores you to follow the basic philosophy. Every dollar spent should return its original amount plus a reasonable profit. Think of this as a cost plus principle of converting your expenses into business investments. You're spending by leading with revenue and you're growing by the cost plus business investment approach. Make all your money accountable. Nothing should be untouchable and all expenses should feel the heat of your scrutiny. No, uh, no exceptions, right? No holy grails. First, you get smart. Then your money gets smart. This is why, you know, if you find yourself constantly losing money, better, uh, better up your game. Um, so before you look, people begin with you. So before you look at others, take an honest look at yourself. Face it. When it comes to people, up markets conceal and tough markets reveal. Yeah, I think it's pretty uh, self-explanatory. Always keep in mind that you can't do more with lesser talent, but with real talent, could always do more with less. And there's really no substitute, right? Training not only builds competence, but also confidence and positive expectations. This is one of the reasons why if you ever watch or listen to um, the live wholesale calls I post on the Facebook fan page and share all over Facebook, well, we train, we, we practice the script, we practice overcoming objections, um, all sorts of things. And it's because training works, right? And the more you train, the more confident you are. And then you hear the objections and you know how to handle them. So if, if you're training by doing the live calls, I, you know, that's kind of like going to war to learn how to be a soldier. You might want to invest a little time before a little energy, a little money, a little effort before you actually um, do the real deal. Don't make the mistake of believing that once changes are made, everyone is on board. 
You must inspect what you expect. Touch base regularly to check in and see how they're doing. And this is about outsourcing and hiring new people, right? Celebrate the small victories as well as the big ones. Celebrate the individual wins as well as the team's successes. Do your best to eliminate uncertainty and you will eliminate a lot of insecurity. And um, I say something similar as uncertainty kills deals. So you want to remove uncertainty and set expectations. Hold your preferred partners to the same high standards that you have for your team. No exceptions. Meet with them regularly, set goals, and review results with them. Good times usually plant seeds of system inefficiencies that during tough times sprout in the choking weeds of ineffectiveness. The goal is to get right what you need to get right with as few steps and as few people doing it as possible. Be a lean, mean fighting machine, right? To change really just means to adapt. And since you can't control the market, you know, I highly recommend you adapt. You can't sit back. You must be more rigorous and resolute in your lead generation than ever before and more so than anyone else. In a downturn, competition increases dramatically, right? And then strain and stress drives people out, which creates a lot of opportunity. And um, step it up, man. Frankly, this is when the true competitive nature of your business reveal itself and you realize it's time to stop trying to get your fair share of the market and do all you can to get your unfair share. Not even like the words fair and unfair, because, you know, if it was yours, you would have it. To have sales, you must have leads. So if you don't have leads, get busy. I discovered that time on task over time was a simple secret that helped me become very good. This is about time blocking your day out, right? And doing the thing, doing the things necessary to grow your business every day. You'll either get over your miss and get on with it, or you'll eventually succumb to your miss and have to get out of it. Number one, stop doing what doesn't work. Number two, figure out what does work. Number three, ramp it up. What am I doing or spending money on that is no longer effective since the market shifted? You can only know this by associating your valid leads and your lead sources with your closed sales, which means tracking I highly recommend a CRM. Um, I use Soho. I use Podio. I use Team Leads, right? But there's lots more. Who cares? Pick one. Um, there's all sorts of them. You just track it. Make sure that every person who calls in or comes through, whatever, that you tie a lead back to to a campaign. That way you know what's working and what's not. If you don't do this, how do you know what to cut and what not to cut? In other words, pursue short-term and long-term goals at the same time. To have your best year plus a great career requires both. Um, they will connect you when your message connect to you when your message connects with their why, when it speaks to their personal motivation. So, lead, you know, potential leads when they reach out to you at, and or you convert them, it's because of their why and their personal motivations. It often doesn't have that much to do with you. An indirect offer is still an offer that seeks an immediate response, but not directly for using your services or helping them buy or sell. It is an offer to get something else from you now, thus it's called an indirect offer, which puts you in a relationship with them and opens the door to possibly doing business with you in the future. 
what does that mean, right? So what if I offered a free report? Or let's notice this podcast, right? You subscribe to this podcast. Hey, subscribe to this podcast, right? And then bam, you're you're on the podcast. I have some information about you now, right? I have a way to communicate with you. Now, I'm not asking for anything. You just subscribe to the podcast, right? But it's like the top of the funnel. That's what they're talking about here. Prospecting is where you get the leads and the marketing is where you do things to cause the leads to come to you. Um, the different, that's the difference right there. Your prospecting can be supported or enhanced by your marketing and your marketing can be supported and enhanced by your prospecting. Good example of this is you can buy a list of, let's say, I don't know, vacant houses and you can take that list and then pay somebody to find, uh, use services to find you cell phone numbers and you can mail them multiple times and then you can cold call them, right? So now you're marketing, and you're prospecting to the same list and they can work hand in hand. Hey, this is, my name's Jeremy Burgess. I'm just reaching out to you. Do you, I, you know, I sent you three postcards about buying your house at XYZ street in Detroit. So I thought I'd just reach out and let you know how serious um, I was. Uh, would you consider a fair all cash offer for your house, Mr. And Mrs. Seller, or have you considered listing your property? If you're an agent, whatever, that's, that's what they're talking about. Um, the answer should be simple and straightforward. The methods that will generate the most leads in the shortest amount of time for the least amount of your effort and money invested. Prospecting is about seeking opportunities. It's the act of personally calling and contacting targeted people you haven't met or people you have met. Marketing is the opposite of prospecting. Instead of seeking opportunities, marketing is about attracting them. It's the work of placing your messages where you believe motivated buyers or sellers are most likely to see or hear them. It really makes sense to do both, right? Those who aren't afraid to make a mistake just jump right in and easily accept the idea they'll learn as they'll go. Others shudder at this thought and think about all the mistakes they could make. What kind of person are you, right? I am definitely the balls to the wall, jump in. I'll figure it out later. I'll do it live, right? Um, he has some suggestions about this. Experience says that an ongoing cycle of study and practice, take action, study and practice, takes action is the best approach. And what he's talking about here is if you don't know something, go do some research, learn a little bit, then go apply it in practice, see what you screwed up or see what you missed, go back, learn some more. I think they wrote a book about this too. It's a difference between ready, aim, fire, and ready, fire, aim. He suggests, I think he's suggesting right here, ready, fire, aim, right? So don't just fire blindly, but see where you hit and then adjust accordingly. A true professional knows what they know, knows what they don't know, and knows the difference between the two. You know, don't pretend to know what you don't know. So when I know, I'll just tell you, and when I don't know, I'll go find the answer. This way, you can always have confidence that I'm getting you the best answer possible. So if your client asks you a question you don't know, that would be a great response, right? Or it could be part of your sales pitch. Make no mistake about it. A shift requires you to do all you can with every lead generation method available. An inconsistent approach can get you leads, but it won't get you anywhere near the number of leads you'll need when the market shifts. To do this, you must subscribe to one simple belief. Dealing with business never takes precedence over finding business. Never. 
you must adopt a position that until your lead generation is done every day, or as we say in Detroit, every day, nothing else should get done. This may seem like a tough position for you to adopt, but adopt it you must. Otherwise, you will constantly find other things that seem more important or allow other things to convince you they're more important. It is the one true challenge of all real estate agents face and the number one stumbling block that knocks most out of the game. Consistent lead generation, which means time blocking. Set some time aside every day and do it. I also recommend reporting, which I just implemented. Right? What is measured in Bruce? Kind of like if you're losing weight, weighing yourself, you have to weigh yourself. Otherwise, how do you know you're losing weight? If you are inconsistent in doing your lead generation activities, you will most likely need to be really concerned about surviving and you can absolutely forget about thriving. Third, they time block an hour each week to plan their week. If they have others that work or report to them, they then they actually block out a fourth slot each week to meet with these individuals and work with them on their goals, plans, actions, and results. That's it. Time block plan. You won't regret the time you put in taking action to generate leads. It is always time well invested. It's like working out or reading. Your goal is consistent lead generation. And the way you do it is seeing your job as lead generation first and servicing second. And the only thing I might disagree on that one is I think you're, like Gary Vaynerchuk says, I think you're a media company first, document your prospecting and then service, right? As important as lead generating activities are, if you can't get a name, number, and ultimately an appointment, what have you really accomplished? I did this so much, right? You you just get people calling you. You you need some sort of database. You need a CRM. You need a way to track things. You need to gather certain information. First, last name, an email address at least, preferably an email address and a phone number, right? So you... You're trading information. Um, otherwise, what are you doing? Just spending money on postcards or websites or squeeze pages or whatever. The ultimate success of your lead generating is directly dependent on your lead conversion ability. One can't work without the other. So you got to generate your leads and you got to close the leads, right? Um, when it comes to lead generation, just realize you're talking about two things, lead generating activities and lead converting to an appointment. The challenge is that lead conversion is a process that gets interpreted as an event that just sort of occurs on its own. Thus, it gets misunderstood and shortchanged. For most, it remains largely examined, often neglected, and seldom mastered, right? So you got to generate the leads and you got to figure out how to close the leads for an appointment. Consistently getting every possible appointment from your leads you generate isn't complicated, but it does require preparation, practice, and purposeful action. In fact, many agents have discovered that outside of actually generating leads, personally handling converting leads to appointments is the most dollar productive um, thing they can do for their business. And this is right, and it's that important. So, um, if if you're trying to outsource your lead uh, generation and converting before other things, uh, don't do that. Do that absolutely last um, and try and avoid it as much as possible. Getting to the table first or second is what matters. 
and this makes conversion more important than presentation. The competitive battle is almost single-handedly won simply by getting an appointment before someone else does. First counts for a lot. First counts for a lot. Uh, it's better to be new and first than seasoned and second. That's how much it matters. Um, the statistics are crazy. Something like 80% of people go with the first person. So, I mean, that's like a B minus just for showing up, right? Conversion success comes to those who intentionally and repeatedly do three things with every lead. Capture, connect, close. This isn't a game of chance, but a game of scripts and systems. So a lot of people say it's a numbers game, and it is to an extent, but it's kind of like poker. Uh, the cards you have are the cards you have, but you can also play them really well. And that's kind of like with scripts, right? Scripts and systems, the cards you're dealt with, the cards you dealt, but you can play them better or you can play them in the smartest way possible. You simply have to adapt what you know to any situation. Likewise, systems make sure that you are taking the right action at the right time with the least amount of effort. CRM, some sort of project management, you need some tasks on you what to do. Uh, that's one of the reasons why I joined the team. I'm really good at some things, not good at other things. If you suck at something, pull that in, but there should be something telling you what to do, like standard operating procedure wise, right? Something I've been working on. You're in the sales business. That means you only get paid when someone buys or sells you something. And that's what I love most about being an entrepreneur. I love that you're only paid for results and it, you know what? She's a harsh bitch sometimes. Sometimes you literally get it to the 99-yard line and something completely out of your control comes and fucks it up. And you want to go, a lot of people want to cry, talk about how life's not fair, or go make somebody else pay them $15 to flip a fucking burger. You could be all pussy about it, right? Or you can realize that the people who get paid the most are very demanding of themselves. They only get paid when they deliver, and they don't make excuses otherwise. I like that. If that doesn't appeal to you, I uh, would quit and go get a job. Just suck it up. Go get a job. Don't. You're not an entrepreneur. If you want to get paid for thing for basically get paid for no results, you are not an entrepreneur. Just just quit and go. You're not going to make it. Right. Everything you might do for someone, while done with a true servant's heart, only gets rewarded financially when a sale occurs. To be successful in real estate sales, you and everyone who works with you must have this mindset. And this is any sales, right? They will always engage you for information first, service second, and transacting business last. These are your leads, your customers, potential customers. However, that means one very important thing to you. While proving what they need or providing what they need, you must also be vigilant in getting what you need, right? So make sure it's, what do we call it, a win-win situation, right? Um, if you're going to offer up some free information or something that's um, very helpful, make sure you capture some information so you have an opportunity to um, earn their business, right? This type, or wait, yeah. This type of fear is inappropriate because asking is just asking and has no emotional energy attached to it. For people who are afraid to ask, like, hey, a lot of people, when they come in the wholesaling, right, in the wholesale world, or they want to flip, and let's say the property's worth 100000 and it needs 20000 in work, um, 
and you want to make a certain profit, generally we come in 30 to 35% below fair market value. It's a little tough in the seller's market, but I mean more like 75 to 80, right? But you get the drift. You need some sort of a discount to make sure you make money and uh, make up for things that go wrong, right? And a lot of people have a hard time asking like, oh, they're just, they're going to be so insulted by my offer. So what? You have to ask and there's nothing wrong with asking. And um, if you don't ask, you're going to have a hard time getting by in life. So make sure you ask. Um, The very this is very straightforward and works every time. Remember, you're in the capture business. Ask for the information. The fundamental theme of connecting is curiosity to know who someone is, to understand their wants and needs, and to become aware of their worries and concerns. At that point, you are investigating, not selling. I do this all the time, right? Motivation and equity. Why are they doing what they're doing? What is the problem? How are they approaching the problem? How can I solve the problem? Is the problem solvable? Am I dealing with a reasonable, rational person? Probably not. It's emotional. It's an emotional problem. How can I fix the problem? How can I draw their attention back? And what can I find? That, what, what would that do for you, Mr. and Mrs. Seller? Would it allow you to move to Florida? All right. So I'm going to make the low all-cash offer, fair all-cash offer. And they go, ah, I would never accept that. Why? This gets you to Florida. You said this is your goal. This closes in 30 days. You have a better offer, Right. You gotta be you gotta be curious about people to see how they solve problems, right? You have two ears and one mouth for a reason, and this is when you use them accordingly. You will ask and then listen and listen. Then you'll ask again and then listen and listen again. And I could use a lot of help with this too. Uh, sometimes I get to talking, or I think I know, right? I think we're all guilty of this. And here's a six connection questions. Number one, who are they? Number two, what do they want or need to do? Number three, where they want or need it or need to do it. Number four, why do they want or need to do it? Number five, when do they want or need to do it? And number six, how do they plan to do it? These are questions you can ask, get connections, figure out what their motivations are, how they're thinking, how they're solving their problems, what they think their problem is, right? And then you can uh, overcome things or not offer uh alternative solutions and press for the close. You may have noticed that these scripts feel repetitive and they are. The interesting thing about scripts is that they are observed one way and experienced another. When you read them or role play them, they can feel um, stilted and overly uh, repetitive. That's how it can feel to you. But when received, they can feel warm, sincere, and natural. You practice scripts so you can deliver them like you're not reading them. It only seems boring and dry to you. If you practice them and they come out like conversationally, that's not how they're received. So if you're like, oh, I don't want to sound like a robot on the phone, you're really saying you don't want to plan. Plan, folks, plan. People want to make the right decision. They fear being talked into the wrong one. And a lot of times they don't know what the right decision is, right? Now you can't help anybody uh, make the right decision, but you can't help them make one, which is the next point. Closing is a process you use to find out where they are and to what they are committed. As a salesperson, you aren't attached to their decision. Your goal is just to help them make one. I say it all the time. You can't make them make the decision you want, but you can make them make a decision. 
They don't have a pipeline because they don't cultivate leads that can't immediately be closed for appointment. Lead cultivation, contracting leads that wouldn't originally set an appointment with you is a vital part of your time block generation time. In a shifted market, unmotivated or unrealistic sellers can cost you time and money. And after lead generation, lead conversion is the most business critical activity you must master. Convert them, folks. Contrary to a lot of tech talk, success on the internet isn't measured in clicks, unique visitors, page views, or even registrations. It's measured just what in just one way. And appointments to do business. So you're not just talking on the phone to talk on the phone or sending emails or Facebook messages or text. Convert them. That's why so many come to understand that while the internet can be a great source of leads, it can also be a great source of financial loss and frustration. Make it work. It's a vehicle that enables you to offer them real estate information in exchange for their contact information. A win-win information swap that must be the foundation of your entire internet strategy. He's talking about your website, your compelling offer, information you can give. Don't just give information away for free, right? Make sure you get something in return. Like you could just listen to this podcast and you might be listening to this podcast right now, but you know what I'd really appreciate? If you listen to this podcast, go subscribe. I don't want you to ever miss a podcast, right? So now I have a subscriber. I have some information about you. You're on a list. You're going to receive this stuff. That's very mild. Can I push you down and maybe I can offer, um, like I have a wholesale series I just give away free right now. Um, it's going to be free too, but eventually it's going to be something you have to give an email address and a phone number up for. So if you haven't already, go to my six-part series um, on wholesaling. It's six hours. You can listen to it. It's on this podcast. Um, just scroll down at six parts and see see where we're going with this. What could you do something similar in your business? You must aggressively think, offer response, and lead capture at every turn on your site. So be thinking conversion and make it a two way street, not a one way street for both of you. Right? Not one way your way, not one way their way. Something where you both win. It won't change. So when you offer what they want. Your site will be sticky, as techies say, because when visitors who find your site find what they want, they tend to hang around. This core understanding of their wants and needs must be the driving force in how you build, update, and maintain your website. So, or websites. I was guilty of this, and I know many people are, and I'm not the only one, and you may or may not have done it, but you don't build websites, you don't do things for yourself right? You do them to capture business. So before you go off on your unique idea, right? Do some try and true stuff and, or at least test your stuff with whatever you're going to put on. However you're going to change doesn't matter. Make sure you have a way to test it. And, um, if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. Cut it loose. Um, Targeted internet lead generation strategies allow you to be a big fish in a strategically defined pond and capture anyone attracted to it. And he's talking about finding a niche, right? Becoming a local market expert, fishing in that pond, right? Instead of in the ocean. It's be like trying to target business in Michigan or trying to become the Detroit market expert, something like that, right? 
Your website should appear on your yard signs, letterhead, business cards, brochures, flyers, direct mail, all advertising. In short, on anything and everything you use to market your business. Think of your website as yellow pages, right? You got to be in the yellow pages. It's got to make sense too. If you're not in the yellow pages, you're not getting any business. Without a strong conversion plan in place, sending everyone to your website is like sending them to outer space. It's a great trip for them, but you'll never see them again. With the internet, you must be intentional about capturing enough useful information to be able to get back to prospects. Might be a great thing. Might be a great presentation. Make sure you get some information in exchange for it. Make sure the website's working for you and for who you're prospecting, right, or trying to help. The important thing to remember is that the offers will have to be very persuasive to get the immediate response you seek. Speed wins the contest almost every time. An auto-response email that is warm and service-oriented is a great first step and an excellent way to ensure you give this quick response. But immediate phone call or personal email is even better and less than five minutes. So when you get a lead, and I've been struggling with this lately because I'm implementing new strategies and new plans and new procedures And uh, it is costing me business and I am breaking things, but I'm breaking things uh, in order to increase my response rate in the future, right? So maybe if you're you're getting back to your lead in an hour, what can you do to get back to it in 30 minutes? All right. What can you do to then get back to it in 15 minutes? What can you do then? Okay. Can I just respond immediately or less than five minutes? Work your way to the goal. Sooner is better than later. The mantra respond like they respond isn't a bad one to follow at all. So if they call, you call them back. If they text, you text them back. If they email, you email them back. If you Facebook message, you Facebook message them back. Um, I do it all. And I usually, like you said, start with what they start with. Tweaking your site and its offers through trial and error should get the numbers up and make the difference. Constantly be testing. Just as you advise your sellers, stand out from the crowd and be more compelling than your competition. If something isn't working, move on or expect to come home empty-handed. I did this a lot, right? You get a romantic idea. Um, A good example is I I advertise in a magazine for six months. And one of the ways they attracted me to do this, they said they would would write a story about me and then say, oh, by the way, um, how would you like to buy some advertisement you know, on the page right before? You can do a double pager and all. And, of course, it worked on me, right? The ego got in the way. And so they wrote a story, and I ended up spending six fucking thousand dollars on uh, magazine marketing that went absolutely nowhere and earned me zero business, right? Don't do that. While the vast majority is just looking, follow up quickly and systematically so you can close all the motivated leads to appointments to do business. There are a lot of looky-loos, but the only way you're going to know is by calling them, right? Call everybody. A shift exposes and magnifies the classic real estate price conflict that has always existed. The asking price the seller wants versus the price the buyer is willing to pay. People are funny about these things. In fact, sometimes when I've seen sellers that, you know, they, they get the price they asked to quit, they have fear that they sold too cheap and will sabotage the deal, even though it might be a great deal. The fact that you came to an agreement so fast is a problem. Um, flip it on the buyer side too. Well, but I just gave too fast or worse. It takes too long, right? I'm 
It's funny. People are really funny about these things and very emotional too. If you think people are making decisions logically, most of the time they are not. They're making things, making decisions emotionally and it's your job to make sense of it so you can close them, right? Uh, something we say we sell on emotion and we close with logic, right? So remind them of why they're doing what they're doing. You know, but you know, you're looking to get to Florida, Mr. And Mrs. Seller, to solve your problem, to get to Florida, Mr. And Mrs. Seller. And look, this makes sense, right? You could go with an agent or you could sell to me cash. Let me walk you through the numbers. Here's what you're going to get with an agent. Here's what you're going to get with me. The difference is we'll be closed in 30 days. Now, do you think waiting for that for that $5,000 you may or may not get in 60 to 90 days is worth waiting? Or would you just rather lock this up now, know that it's done in 30 days or less, and then you can be in your beautiful home in Florida? How's that sound? Should I write it up? There you go. It's a perfect example of that. If any agent or their buyer believes that a house is poorly priced, it loses its opportunity and doesn't draw their attention. Basically, it gets written off from the start. Once this happens, it isn't easy to get those agents or buyers back, even with a series of price reductions or home improvements. Better to come out at the right price. The first time someone sees a property is called the window of opportunity because it's the single best chance to create the impression that will sell the house. The most successful agents become master of pricing and masterful in getting their sellers to trust the findings and act on them. Buyers are always looking for value. Regardless of the market, they want the best property available at the lowest price. A shift doesn't change it. It actually accentuates it. This happens because of what a shift does change, the direction and speed at which a buyer thinks prices are going. Patterns will emerge and require interpretation. Sometimes they're obvious and sometimes they're not. Properties that are appropriately priced for the market will always make the best impression in an up market or a down market, right? So, and I've done this and we've all done this, take a listing, right? Well, if we start at this price and we don't get any offers, can we come down to this price? It's way better just to come out at the right price. We'll maybe even let it get bid up. The best way to truly serve a seller in a shift is to persuade them to outthink the other sellers they must compete against. And everybody thinks their home is special. And one of the reasons why I asked this question on wholesale calls, um, Mr. And Mrs. Seller, what do you, what work do you think your house needs to sell at the top of the market? Because when they get on Zillow or they look at the comps and they're looking around, let's say there's six comps and they're between 100 and 150, which one do you think their eye goes to? What do they start comparing their house to? The 150, right? The top of the market. That's why I asked the question. Well, that's your job too, right? You need to bring it back to reality. In a buyer's market, they are in effect the same. In other words, in a buyer's uh, in a buyer's words, in a buyer's market, maximum price and minimum time are the stra- same strategy. So in a shift, um, time is your enemy. And getting and pricing ahead of the market is what you need to do. And that saves you the most time. They're one and the same. In a rising market, they have faith that values are at their lowest and they don't fear current prices. 
but in a falling market, they have no faith in current prices and fear paying too much. As a result, they're looking for the lowest price home as an indication of the best value. And they're talking about buyers and how funny they get, right? Market's going up. I need to get in now. I need to get in now. I'm not worried about property values going down. I'm worried about you know getting in before I get priced out. When it's falling, I better wait for the bottom, right? All sellers naturally fear underselling their house and rightfully sell. However, in a shifting market, the greater risk is in overpricing. Um, Once sellers fall behind, they can end up chasing the market all the way down and losing the margin they would have gained by pricing it right in the first place. Uh, What he's talking about here is pricing ahead of the market, especially in a falling market. If it's falling a percent a month, don't make sh- and you think it's going to take ninety days to sell. Mark it down appropriately. Make it what the price is worth at ninety days. You'll get the sale now and save the time. And odds are, if you wait the time to drop it, you're chasing the market. Whether the market is on the way up or the way down, sellers should always price to the market they're headed to. In a seller's market, sellers tend to dwell in the future. And buyers in the past, right? Like, oh, I can get more money for my house. And buyers are like, well, this house three years ago was worth $50,000. One of my favorite things is like, do you have a time machine? Because I would love to go back and buy all those $50,000 houses that are now 100000 right? Oh, we don't. Well, I guess we better move forward with what we have. When they reject an offer, it's like they are buying back the home at that price with the expectation they can resell it and get what they want. If you don't make the mar- you don't make the market, you simply show them how to get the home sold in the market. And here are the seven maxims for pricing in a shifted market. Number one, be a student of your market, know your numbers. Number two, focus your main comps on actives, pendings, and solds may already be out of date. So pay attention. Number three, be a student of property. Preview them so you understand what is selling and why. I try and do this consistently. I can, I can do it better. If I see a comp, I'm like, why is that price so low? Or why do they just do such a price drop? Go check it out. Find out why. Number four, keep your presentation as current as possible. Let your ongoing research do the talking. Number five, pre-qualify for motivation. Sellers who must or need to sell, sell most often. Number six, price ahead of the market to avoid chasing it. Number seven, always secure price reductions in advance to avoid falling behind in the market. Price and condition are irrevocably intertwined, right? It seems obvious, but a lot of people don't think it. And this comes back to sellers comparing their homes while the house down the street uh, sold for 150000 Well, you're right, Mr. Mississippi. The house down the street did sell for 150000 However, they completely rehabbed the house, and it's an entirely modern kitchen with granite and cherry cabinets and has a uh, 97% efficiency furnace. It has whatever, right? And uh, your house is right from the 80s. So, I mean, if you went and did all this work to your house, that's right. Your house would sell for $150,000 or maybe even more, but... As it currently states or stands, um, right now it is worth a hundred thousand. It's current, current state. That's what they're talking about. 
Their house must now appeal to the largest possible segment of likely buyers. In a shift with fewer buyers to go around, this becomes imperative. We're talking about things you may love or things about your house you may love that not everybody will do and you want to appeal to as many buyers as possible. In the end, the cost of staging your home may not increase the price you get, but it may just get the house sold. And I remember this in 2008, 2009. I mean, nothing was selling with it. Well, got it. Like REOs were selling, but like if you were just a regular seller on the market, you owe more than your house is worth and you're trying to sell it. Some of the homes that did sell though, staging, I probably didn't get more money for it, but it probably helps actually sell it. Staging always follows the three P dash two F formula, plantings, paint, pictures, fixtures, and furnishings. If you follow the simple strategy and checklist, you're on the right path to successful staging. And um, he talked about making it more like a hotel. There's nothing unnecessary in a nice hotel, right? Staging um, accentuates the true value of a home. Uh, It's notable amenities and features, and when done effectively, can actually create value. Think of them as a price war and a beauty pageant all rolled into one. With so many homes for sale, too many potential buyers buy into the biggest myth of a shift. They think they can time the market. Nobody can time the market. The ones who think the opposite of timing the market believe that if you just always stay in the market, then time will simply find you. They aren't looking for a they aren't looking for a killing because they know what uh, they know what's a matter of luck, not planning. They know they could just as easily hit miss it as hit it. Right. And I did this right. Raising market before the first crash made 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 some decent money, made some big checks and thought I was some shit. Right. And actually I was just rising with the market and it had very little to do with me other than I took some action. And when the market started to drop and I can't do the same, I couldn't do the same thing. I just got gutted like a fish, right? Don't let that be you. As a result, when you first meet a potential buyer, the three fundamental things you want to understand are their ability, readiness, and willingness to buy now. Knowing a buyer's level of urgency is just another way of knowing their timing and just how willing they are to buy right now. Right now is really important. In both shifts, many buyers were less able to buy, and some could no longer even qualify. Got to be serious about this, man. Personal reasons tend to be the most shift-proof. Real buyers have real wants and needs. Their wants drive them, and their needs compel them. How many of you were relocated during the, the crash of 2007, 2008, 2009, right? You lost your job. Then you had to take a job somewhere else and you had to move and you had to sell your house. Maybe you had to do a short sale. Maybe you had to leave all the equity on the table. Uh, Maybe you you had to bring money to the table and you were forced to sell. Maybe your company helped you even or covered some losses. They had a compelling reason to do it and they had to do it. And it didn't matter what was wrong with the economy. They had to sell in order to move on. That's what he's talking about here. Find those reasons. Once you understand someone's motives, you can help them overcome any doubts or reluctance by reminding them of what they're going to gain by buying now. Push the button. 
willingness not only has to be there at the start of the buying process, but it has to be checked on regularly to make sure it remains intact. Just as an unwilling buyer can become willing, a willing buyer can become unwilling. Willingness in a shift is a precious thing. Nurture it, support it, and appreciate it. You must help people find confidence and clarity if they are to become willing buyers. And here are three ways to energize your buyer urgency. Number one, become the local economist of choice. Number two, help them tap into their why. Number three, address buyer reluctance. Your goal is to round out their economic understanding and market knowledge so that they have a complete picture. If they sell and then buy during a seller's market, they will get more when they sell and then pay more when they buy. When they sell and then buy in a buyer's market, they will get less from their sale but be able to make it up with greater savings when they buy. In the end, home ownership is best viewed as a long-term investment just like the stock market or any other sound investment. Short-term buying will always put anyone at the mercy of the market. That's what the greatest risk is, right? And this has not been lost on me. Some of the most successful people I know sell as little as possible. And I know several people who literally bought before the crash, rode out the crash, like lost over half the value of their property, rode the whole thing out, and now their property is worth even more. They They just went right through the crash. Like it was, they had some hard times with it, rented out, they were fine. And then you look at everybody flipping and wholesaling and everything else like that, and you're like, hmm, they're really not farther ahead. The key here is to not appear to be self-serving or simply offering up your own opinions. Cite independent sources and quote experts. This is when you're trying to get buyers and or sellers to do what they need to do if they want to buy or sell in the market they're currently in, right? Or if they must. Market expectations are a powerful source of motivation for buyers, and you want to be the one setting these expectations. Something I could say here, but he says it better here in a little bit. Your job is to help them make the best decision for their family and their circumstances, and often that will require you to tap into their motivations and keep them tapped into it from, from the first time you meet all the way through closing. I think that's pretty self-explanatory. If they are planning on trading up, you will need to highlight how saving on the larger home purchase will offset any loss on the sale of their current house and vice versa, right? Um, Barry Schwartz, psychologist and author of The Paradox of Choice, Why More is Less, states there's a point where all of this choice starts to not only be unproductive, but counterproductive, a source of pain, regret, Worry about missed opportunities and unrealistically high expectations. So this is one of the reasons why we take, when we take buyers out as a, as a, a buyer's agent, we try not to show them more than four houses at one time. There's a lot of good reasons, but that's one of them, right? So you want to keep the number small. Too many choices actually makes it harder for most people to decide. One aspect of this is this less is more theme that can help you overcome buyer reluctance is the best buy list. This is a list you have compiled of the current best buys in the market. I saw a ton of, there were several REO agents who did this, who went and previewed the properties and found the best deals, the best listings. So they spent their time walking through the best listings, 
put together a list and market it out to their buyers as an added value. Hey, by the way, write your offer through me, right? Each shift has its own unique characteristics with possibilities and prospects that are specific to that market. Don't hesitate. There is a definite advantage that goes to those who move first. First counts for a lot. And here are the three markets of the moment. Number one, short sales. Individuals or families trying to avoid foreclosure. And that's where you sell your house for less than what it's worth. And the lender um, either forgives or usually forgives the, the the difference. You might have to you know pay some taxes on that, right? But you avoid foreclosure that way. Number two, foreclosures, bargain hunters and investors seeking to buy value. And number three, REOs, financial institutions with an above average number of foreclosures to sell. These homes tend to hit the market abruptly and can grow so numerous as to dominate the overall market, driving down prices even further and thereby creating a second wave of defaults and foreclosures. This downward cycle of foreclosures and falling prices can eventually feed on itself, building momentum until bargain hunters and investors are attracted back into the market. And this is exactly what happened in Metro Detroit. There were a lot of properties on the market in 2007. But it was insane. They dumped thousands of properties on the market at once. And they were all REO. I mean, it literally gutted the market. I don't know what you can do. Unfortunately, I've seen a lot of agents spend significant time and effort trying to help someone who simply doesn't care enough to help themselves. The seller must be honest with you. Here they're talking about short sales, right? Or foreclosures. What to include in a letter of authorization for a short sale, right? A short, number one, a short sale, a short letter authorizing you to negotiate on the homeowner's behalf. Number two, a loan reference number or owner's account number. Number three, the date. Number four, property address. Number five, owner's full name and signature. Number six, owner's contact information. And number seven, agent's name and contact information. You will need to know all the documentation they require and the qualifying parameters for your willingness to do this. If a rework of a loan does not seem possible or your sellers do not even want to consider this option, then a short sale is what you need to seek. And here we're talking about the hardship letter and documentation for the short sale, right? So number one, you need a letter from the owner. You need to document the financial facts that led to the short sale process. This means proof, right? So number two, we're talking about proof of income and assets, bank statements, pay stubs, um, disclose and document all assets, 401ks, IRAs, stocks, certificate of deposit, any interest in any real property or business, right? Proof of hardship, bills, unemployment records, death certificates, divorce decrees, whatever. Um, number four, preliminary net sheet. Reflect the sales price you expect to get and any other fees that will be due on sale, including your commission. Include CMA with analysis of current, actives, pendings, and solds. That's the basics, right, to get your short sale going right. Lenders can have a heart. They will often be sympathetic with homeowners who face true hardships that make them unable to stay current on payments or sell the home for more than owed. It's a lengthy process of persistence and patience um, it's a lengthy process and persistence and patience are critical. 
to your success. It may require many contracts, um, several callbacks, and even long periods on hold. And something I want to talk about here, short sales became very difficult to do for a lot of reasons. But one reason is there were a lot of people selling their home, shorting their home, who didn't need to. And when lenders figured this out, like all humans, it made it difficult for everybody else. And this, and this is something I equate to the cost of theft, right? There are a lot of people that go through life stealing things all the time. They just do, right? They go to stores, they steal things, um, they use resources that aren't theirs, they don't pay for in one shape or form, and it's a hidden cost. It's something you don't see, but you pay for everywhere you go, and that happened with short sales. At some point, it becomes so difficult, I just quit working. I just went right to REOs. Why, why bother? Fuck that. I'll just go get it after it's already bank-owned, whatever. That happens, um, and it happened a lot in the Detroit market. I think Atlanta was number one for fraud, um, but Detroit was number two. So consequently, working in short sales in Detroit became a very difficult thing to do because it was a market full of people, um, a lot of them lying about their hardships just to get out of the loan. And as you can imagine, lenders don't like that. And if you're a lender, could you blame them? You know? Here we go. Workouts and short sales. A quick overview. Number one, seller typically must be 60 days behind on payments to qualify. And actually, it might even get worse, right? At some point, people are behind like a, a six months to a year. Number two, be sure your seller is for real. Ask for a credit report. Search for any other properties titled in their name. Number three, contact uh, the lender and submit a letter of authorization. Who is servicing the loan? This is usually your first stop. Who holds the note? Ask for a representative form uh, from the loss mitigation department authorized to negotiate a workout. Number four, document the hardship. Be accurate. Confirm everything in the hardship letter and documentation. Reliability is golden. Provide full and accurate financial disclosure. Submit a preliminary net sheet with a comprehensive market analysis. Number five, Negotiate a workout. Ask the lender for forbearance to suspend, roll back, forgive, or add to the mortgage or reduce payments. Ask the lender to refinance the note with more favorable terms. Could ask for a short sale. You receive If you receive an offer on the home, check it for accuracy and submit it to the lender as a short sale. This, will most, this is most likely when the lender will share the terms they'll accept on the house. Number six, don't buck the system. Follow the lender's workout systems. Be persistent, patient, and even-tempered. Be available and respond to any communications promptly. And here we go. The num- the two opportunities for REOs, and that's real estate owned, right? Bank-owned real estate. So number one, REO seller represent, uh, representative. Listing agents who market their services to financial institutions who need to sell REO properties. And number two, you can be an REO buyer's representative, a buyer's agent who markets their services to REO seller representatives and handle the buyer leads from these properties. What are they talking about, right? So when you're a listing agent, you put a sign in the yard to market the properties. It could be a pain in the ass to deal with buyers, especially in a down market or in a place like Detroit where a lot of the commissions are so low, you're talking about splitting um, $2,000 and now you're doing it for 1000 and then maybe you're on a team and you split that again. So now you're working for $500. 
Yeah, you might just want to outsource that. That's what we're talking about here. Be sure you understand that these sellers are looking for two key services from their listing agency. He's talking about REO, bank owned, right? Ongoing property preservation and immediate property sales. Common tasks in working REOs include rekeying the house, overseeing an eviction or cash for keys, inspecting the property for damage, changing over utilities, and managing maintenance and repairs. Our interviews with top REO agents indicated that one full-time talented assistant with the proper systems can handle the work of about 50 properties. The lender's asset managers often work with hundreds of properties at a time, so the better equipped an agent is to do volume business, the less complicated the asset manager's lives become, right? Solve the problem. Um, But don't let this discourage you. During a shift, the volume of REOs can soar, extending beyond the capabilities of the agent specialist already in the game. So here's he's talking about people already in the game and you're not in the game yet. Dude, just get in the game. Odds are business will catch up to you, right? It's been said that luck is when preparation meets opportunity. I agree with that sentiment. Fortune usually favors the prepared. At the professional level, almost no one can play for pay without putting in the time, study, and work it takes to master the game. There ain't no, there ain't no shortcuts, right? Don't just be ready because you see the opportunity. and Don't just be willing to take the risk because you think you have nothing to lose. See the business because you studied it, learned it, and can successfully do the work. Seek the business because you're able. Talking about hard times, don't just, you know, panic and do shit, right? Figure it out, study it, learn it, try it, work it, because you can. Real estate transactions aren't particularly trouble-free in any market, but when a shift happens, few sales are easy and almost all closings a challenge. What makes this market especially tough is the apparent willingness of buyers to walk away at any point in the sale. When everyone believes the market is headed down, buyers are afraid of sinking with the ship. And this happens a lot. Buyers back out. I saw it happen all the time. As they listen to the media, fellow coworkers, friends, and family buyers are likely to question their own judgment. In other words, no sale is safe until it's sealed at closing with everyone's signatures. The market had shifted down and my sale, my selling skills scaled hadn't scaled up. I assumed that all buyers and sellers truly needed was an honest real estate agent with integrity who was willing to provide them the absolute best service possible. And I was absolutely right. And I had just overlooked one important detail. They also need a salesperson. I had been a real estate agent, but I also need to be a real estate salesperson. So if you think it's just about service, you need to close too. It's entirely up to you to oversee your contracts from start to finish. You have to be good at both ends of the sale, making it and closing it. The key is to remember the simple truth. You do your deals heads down, but you save your deals heads up. Heads up is about seeing what's coming. It's about being vigilant, prepared to act. In my experience, there are four ways you can think about what might happen in any professional endeavor. Nothing will go wrong. Anything could go wrong. Something will go wrong or everything will go wrong. I like the last one. He agrees with me. He says, in my experience, it is best to prepare 
as if everything will go wrong. I know that sounds pessimistic, and it really isn't. It's not. It's like uh, loss mitigation, right? If you work in a store and you're trying to reduce theft, right, you don't go around thinking of all the things that can go right. You go around thinking of all the things that can go wrong. Not because you're a pessimist, but because you're trying to reduce the amount of theft you have, right? People with their fucking cult of positivity. Problems may or may not come at any particular time, but over time, they will come. They just do. And they shift, they come more often than not. So when it comes to bulletproofing the transaction, take the everything will go wrong approach and keep your head up. Remember, you can predict exactly what can happen, but you can't predict when it might happen. Assume everything will go wrong and come up with ways to possibly prevent them from happening or effectively deal with them if they do. You won't be surprised when problems show up and you won't be surprised when they go away. And I had to do this in 2008 and nine when I was rehabbing. I mean, it was, it was a, it was crazy. The amount of theft that was going on. People were breaking into houses, stealing copper, stealing furnaces, stealing hot water tanks, stealing windows in some instances. Right. So you just go and hope, well, maybe hope my house doesn't hit. Nope. I wrote every offer like it was going to get hit. And then if it didn't, Hey, I made extra money. If it did, I already counted on it. Actually, some of them got hit twice. You know, I didn't count on that. So I had to go back and adjust the numbers a little bit more on that. But that's illustrating his point that he's trying to make here. Getting sales to close in a shift is not always about the technical details, although being knowledgeable about them is important. It's really about what you do when issues arise, how soon you respond, how well you handle things, how well you work with everyone involved, and ultimately both parties' willingness to close play the most significant roles in the final outcome. Be prepared, man. Sellers should be prepared that any buyer will most likely ask for repairs to be done. Consider asking the seller to have their house pre-inspected so they can be forewarned of any issues and head them off before they cause a problem. I love that idea, right? Uh, This means appraisers are usually under increased pressure from the lender to be sure the home is not overpriced. In a shift, fewer homes will appraise, and those that do will require more attention and research from the professionals in the transaction. He's talking about in a falling market, right? One of the problems with the falling market is uh, uh, lenders don't want to lend in a falling market at current prices, so they want to project what they think the home will be worth, so they put a lot of pressure on uh, appraisers to do that. Encourage buyers to apply for a loan before they find a prospective home. It's simple logic. The moment they decide to buy is the moment they should submit an application to a great loan officer lender. It's also the safest strategy to ensure they're pre-approved and that you can make a qualified offer on their behalf. Don't work with people that aren't pre-approved or have proof of funds. If you're working with a buyer, explain the benefits of working with these known professionals. If they insist on using another mortgage company, get their agreement to run a parallel application. It's a move that won't cost them anything and could save them everything. I think it speaks for itself. I like that, right? So they want to go with some no-name brand or their cousin works with some mortgage company you're just not sure is getting shit done. Yeah, that's great. You go with them. Hey, tell you what, why don't we run with this other one too? It won't hurt you. It won't cost anything, but we'll have a backup just in case something goes wrong. Has fair enough. 
Substantial non-refundable earnest money deposits can also reduce the likelihood of a buyer walking away from the purchase contract. If you represent the seller and are providing a major concession to the buyer, you may want to treat it like an option they only receive if they back it up with some additional non-refundable earnest money. And here are the seven do's and don'ts of mortgage funding. Number one, don't change your employment status. Number two, don't make any major purchases. It's cars, furniture, home theater, vacations, etc. Number three, don't increase your credit card debt or miss any payments. Number four, don't change bank accounts or make undisclosed large deposits. Number five, don't apply for a credit card, co-sign a loan, or make a credit inquiry. Number six, don't spend money you have set aside for closing. Not any, not ever. Number seven, don't delay in providing all paperwork asked for by the mortgage company. Secure the loan, close on your home. That's great advice right there. I think you've been in real estate at any for any amount of time. You've been disappointed by one of those things heading to closing, right? Whether you're an agent or an investor or maybe even a buyer. And you're like, oh, shit. I shouldn't have bought that shit from Rent-A-Center, right? Now I can't buy a house for 90 days. And then your agent probably fired you because you fucked up the deal and now he's not getting paid. You can absolutely keep everyone and everything moving forward toward a successful closing. Just maintain close communication with all parties and above all, keep your head up. But the goal is to have as few contingencies as possible with a short timetable for clearing them. This is why you recommend pre-approved buyers and pre-inspected properties. Just talking about getting ahead of problems, right? So if you have a listing and you get it pre-inspected and some problems come back, get your seller agree to fix them before you list a property. Now, you've anticipated the problem. It costs them money, but you got ahead of it. Now, if you get a buyer, the deal's less likely to fall through because you address these things, right? That's what he's talking about. Few contingencies. Get past them. If you can take care of them beforehand, take care of them. Pre-approved. Get your buyer pre-approved. Get your house, get your seller's house pre-inspected. The seller assumes a lot of risk when they take their house off the market by entering into a contract that is contingent upon the buyer selling their home, especially when homes are not selling quickly. Often there are other people who will need to approve the transaction. Be sure you know who they are, what they need to approve, and when they need to improve it. It is even better to make them subject to disapproval. So I had this happen with a buyer. We went out, we're looking at properties, and we're narrowing in. We're just about ready to make an offer on the property, and what had I done? I had neglected to ask about what the purpose of this property is. He said a rental, and I thought, okay, rental, that's fine. Actually, no, a rental for a family member. So he was close and brought this person in, and all of a sudden this person did not like this house, and they weren't part of the process at all, and we literally had to start all over again. Why? Because I hadn't followed that rule. Attorneys sometimes take an active role in the transaction, a more active role in the transaction than expected, raising questions about specific language or details which may seem incidental to the transaction. No matter, just be proactive and get any and all questions answered in a timely fashion. And actually, I don't even give a fuck about this anymore. I hate lawyers. Sorry if you're a lawyer and you know, it's not personal. I know we need some of you, just not all of you. Uh, but they kill deals, frankly, most of the time. I don't change my contract. I don't. Hey, I get it. You don't like it. Sell somebody else. There you go. There's my answer. 
boom. Put a copy of your key contacts list in the transaction file and carry another with you. That way, um, something goes wrong, you can do you can you can start handling the problem immediately. After all, you both have the same goals: a completed closing, earned commissions, and satisfied clients. This is if they're talking about if the other real estate agent or maybe another investor or another wholesaler drops uh, the ball, step in and get it done. You cannot let misinformation or wrong advice persist. It could blow up in everybody's face. Got to get ahead of it, too, if you can. While you will need to be the one who is tracking the process, checking on what is getting done, and insisting that the right things happen, you are not trying to micromanage the other agent. They have a job to do, and you respect that. But you are going to own the outcome and be accountable to things getting done as they should. On the one hand, you're going to be open, supportive, and respectful. On the other hand, you're going to be assertive, insistent, and determined. In the end, if they drop the ball and leave you doing most of the work, oh well. It's just part of the game. Do the work, get the deal closed. And in the shift, getting transactions closed is far more important to you and your customers, right? And here's the truth. Agents gain a reputation among other agents and among vendors for that matter. That reputation will either serve them in times of need or fail them when they most need someone's help. You want to be the most trusted and respected agent in your area. The one everyone looks up to having as a co-op who looks forward to having as a co-op on their deal. And I actually have had this recently happen to me. Um, An agent where I accepted an offer. My buyer or my seller accepted an offer, and um, it did not go well. The communication went poorly. Um, I had to do a lot of hassle and follow-up. Probably, I probably should have been more aggressive, and our team should have been even more aggressive, but it was someone we thought we knew well. Um, was maybe just a little behind. Um, anyway, it was a shit show, man. If you think I'm going to look at any offer submitted by that agent again in the same way, yeah, you know, hey, I'm not, you know, one time is, you know, I'm not going to, nobody gets damn one time. I screw shit up, right? You screw shit up more than once. But don't you think even if you screw things up once, people are looking at you a little differently? God forbid you screw it up two or three times. Again, it's not about one deal or one year. It's about your career. You will adopt the mindset of an air traffic controller. Even if you only represent one of the parties in the deal, you will want to track all the moving parts, inspections, approvals, funding, closing, occupancy, and any other critical dates for completion. Be a can-do, get-the-deal-done kind of person, right? You will be the one who reminds others what they need to do and by when they need to do them, even if they've already been given a copy of the contract and notified of their responsibilities. Emotions often drive home buying decisions, be they going in or getting out. In a shifted market, the decision to buy is complicated by external subconscious factors, such as negative press, the foreclosure reports, and the um, he puts this very nicely, the less informed opinions of family and friends. I have had deals die. I well, I actually had this happen three two two months ago. Got a referral for a listing appointment, really strong. They're really happy. Sent them over a net sheet and it's, it was, it wasn't a huge transaction. It's gonna be like 130, $140,000. And they saw the 6% commission, which is standard. And I don't discount my commission. I think I have really good reasons why I have a really good team and we add a lot of value. Um, if you want discounted commission, there are lots of places you can go and get discounted commission. Anyway, 
That's not why she did it. She got it in her head. It was like, my neighbor said that 6% is just absolutely the worst deal. And don't bother to contact me. Don't come out. Don't do anything. Wow. You know? There you go. Uh, talk to their family member. Now, she's going to go pay 6% somewhere else for sure. And if she pays 3% or 4%, I hate to tell you like this, but um, agents, other agents look at the commission they're going to get paid. And if they see the reduced commission, what do you think is going to happen? So do you think she's really saving that commission? It's possible. It is possible that she is. It's very unlikely that she actually is, though. Preactive, proactive is better than reactive. The advantage always go to the ones who keep their head, their heads up and anticipate where everything might go wrong. Your job is to keep everyone's eyes on the prize, a successful, completed, and closed transaction. And there are two timeless strategies that the best professionals use to stay on track and get to the finish line. Number one, proactive prevention. And number two, early response. If anything go wrong, it will. So take Murphy out of the game and keep everyone's head in it. Here's some bulletproofing strategies, right? Number one, proactive prevention with buyer, sellers, vendors, co-ops. Um, outcome framing. What do we want to achieve? Setting expectations. What do we real, realistically need to consider? Number uh, or preparing alternatives. What? Will we do if dot you know dot 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 like if um, the market crashes further if if um, people can't get loans maybe we can do a land contract reassurance we're on track ahead of the game and doing fine and also number two early response to problems and issues constant communication what's happening how are you doing inspecting expectations right has it been done what will you do now number three or I'm sorry problem solving. What do we need to do now? How can this get done? And contract to close tracking. Where's our progress? What's next? You must be the calmest person and the calming influence in the transaction. There's also an ego thing, right? Don't have an ego. No obstacles too big. If we have the if we have thought our way over, around, and under it. Sincere reassurance delivered confidently and proactively builds trust and peace of mind for the client. I'll give you an example because my deal died today. Um, it was dead before. We just found out it was dead today, right? And I had to call my seller and say, by the way, your property's going back on the market. So before I was going back on the market, we made sure we marked it active. We made sure everything was fine on the listing. And then I called my seller. I'm like, hey, look. I got some bad news. Um, we're not sure what's going on, but the buyer uh, is backing out of the deal. They sent over mutual release. Now I'm going to make their life difficult. Um, however, we already marked your property active, and I had two other people who had submitted offers, and I and I already reached out to them to see if their buyer is still interested. Uh, we have it back on the market, and we're going to start showing it immediately. It was shit news to do, and I had to call and deliver it, and I was already proactive about it, right? I fucked up my whole day, which is why I'm sitting here at 1020 at night, Keller Williams and Royal Oak reading the fucking podcast. Thank you very much, Mr. Agent. Mer, right? You think I'm gonna think I'm gonna look at their deal the same way every time? Hell no. In a shifted market, this word of mouth dissemination of your name and reputation is pure gold. There are very few things that left on their own get better. He's referring to problems, right? 
In fact, there's a scientific law for this truth. It's called entropy, which informally says anything left alone tends to fall apart. I don't know a problem gets better through nothing. Just tackle it right away. I once heard an agent say that her motto was constant communication creates customer confidence. When it comes to the work of the vendors, to the transaction, accountability is the key. You must inspect what you expect. And I think there's another way to say this too. What is measured improves. Accountability works, man. Why do you think I joined the team? You may even engage your clients in the process, particularly if they are required to approve of the final solutions. People almost always support those plans and ideas they have a hand in creating. Can you make it your seller or buyer's idea? Or your vendor's idea? In the long term, your professional fail-safe systems establish you as a reliable, trustworthy, competent professional that gets things done, done right, and on time. That kind of reputation means money in your pocket, a career worth having, and a business that is not only growing, but absolutely worth owning. I think Ron Moore even be a good example of that, right? He's been around for fucking ever, seen the ups and downs, all that, managed to come out with... uh, is integrity, right? I think that matters a lot. We do our deals with our heads down, but we save our deals with our heads up. Successful people shift always, continuously, relentlessly. And hard times aren't easy, hence the name. But you know what? Easy times aren't easy either. Life is a continuous challenge. And to that point, the problem-free market does not exist. If you want to have fewer problems, I suggest you learn to become comfortable with being uncomfortable. Learn to shift. In the real estate business, downward shifts are more difficult on the front end, and upward shifts become more difficult on the back end, right? So as the market's falling, you, you struggle. Um, and as, as uh, basically on the front end, as the market starts going down, right? To successfully implement um, these 12 tactics, you must act your wage. This means you must think and act the wage you want before you earn it. Average is as average does. Good is as good does. And great is as great does. What do you want to become? And this means owning your income, right? So you have two choices in your attitude. You could be sitting at work or in your business going, I have this money. I don't have this amount of money because X, my boss, doesn't appreciate me. I'm being exploited by capitalist pigs. Um, I'm being taken advantage of by the market. It's the market's fault, not my fault. I wish I could get better, all that. Or you can just own the outcome, right? You can step up. You're probably getting paid what you're worth. Fucking deal with it, right? It's a bitter pill to swallow. Become better. Become more reliable. Add more value, and you're very likely to make more money. And then if you spend a significant amount of time adding value and then... You're not making the money you you think you should deserve, then you may want to consider that perhaps it is not you. Um, tough lesson, I know. We all do it at some point in time. One of the greatest myths is that you succeed your way to success. This isn't true. In fact, just the opposite is true. You fail your way to success. Everyone fails. The ones who succeed are the ones who keep going. The ones who fail are the ones who don't. For those who have analysis paralysis and they're afraid of failure, that's like being afraid of air. You can't live without oxygen 
right? You have to breathe and you're not going to succeed without failure. Get over it. Who fucking cares? When you succeed, you do an end zone dance and celebrate. When you lose, you seek to find out what happened, learn from your mistake and push forward. Failing at something isn't failing. It's learning what didn't work and growing from the experience. There you go. Success never comes to the chosen few, but to the few who choose, these can be the worst of times. These can be the best of times. You get to choose. And that's what we're ending on, folks. We don't get to choose the time we have here, when it begins, and or necessarily when it ends. But we can choose what we do with it in the meantime and the attitude we have about it and what we want to accomplish in whatever amount of time we have here. Fucking get after it. And if you enjoy and find this podcast helpful... Do me a favor, rate and review on iTunes. It's really important, man. I'm stuck at 49. I'd really like to get to 100 in the next couple months. It's one of the few ways I have of tracking iTunes because the only information they give me is downloads. And over half of the people who listen to podcasts come from iTunes. So I need you to rate and review. That's how we get the podcast going, and that's how we grow it. If you enjoy this podcast, if you don't enjoy this podcast, what you're doing, go somewhere else. Listen to another podcast. If you're still here, I think you should go rate and review. All right. Um, if you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, go to renegadedetroit.com. If you're interested in attending any of the local meetups, go to meetup.com forward slash renegade Detroit investors or facebook.com forward slash Detroit investment club. And on the Facebook one, you got to go to the events and hit subscribe. Otherwise, they don't always show up. Thanks, Facebook. You can hit me up on Twitter and Instagram at Jeremy Burgess. And of course, you always go to youtube.com forward slash user forward slash Detroit wholesalers. And as I wrap up this podcast, I do want to take a moment to encourage you to take the steps you need to become financially independent. I know I do this every week, man, do it. Pick a goal. I know there are distractions, mistakes, poisonous people, bad habits, whatever. Pick a goal, stick with it. Don't give up. Do something every day that gets you closer, even if it's one step. And I do want to thank you guys for listening and everybody who's been sharing. I know it's a ton of you um, for all the ones I didn't see or I missed. Thank you. I really appreciate your attention. I know you can be doing lots of other things right now. Till the next podcast, crush it. <laughs>